Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined, as always, by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey man, I'm here, doing okay. Same old thing. <laughs> same old, same old. This is episode 102. We're talking about hernias, which, um, you know, for better or worse, that's our topic today. I don't, I don't know how, how interested people are we get a lot of questions about this topic like is lifting you know does lifting heavy weights put me at higher risk for developing a hernia or i have a hernia what do so and when i say i get a lot of questions this isn't like in the instagram world where people say a lot of people have been asking and no (laughs) one has asked you like we get this very frequently so we decided to make a podcast and youtube video about it but again if you have zero interest in hernias medical science or nuance we've got other podcasts to listen to I mean, that's, it's, it's perfectly okay. I I'll say I personally have no interest in this topic, but I agree that it's one that, uh, you know, comes up frequently enough that it needs to be addressed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those bread and butter things, uh, that we, we learned about in med school and in residency, particularly if you're in any of the primary care subspecialties and, you know, the general recommendation is if you diagnose a hernia, you just, you send them to the general surgeon and then that's it, you know? And, and you know, maybe do some follow up a- afterwards. But uh, as far as like the actual risks of developing uh, a hernia uh, or like complications of hernia surgery, that's usually not something. That's usually something that's reserved for uh, the surgical uh, residents and 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 uh, attendings, um, just because that's their specialized training. I actually tried to record a podcast with a general surgeon who's an attending, um, but there was a lot of information being given that wasn't based in evidence and I couldn't publish the podcast. It doesn't mean that per- that person's bad. It's just like, you know, what you learn um, oftentimes is what you end up remembering um, and that changes over time. And if you don't, you know, kind of commit the new data to memory or, or you know, some, there's not a new eponym for you to remember, then maybe when you are asked about it on the spot, the right information doesn't come out. So I just, uh, anyway, that's why we're doing it, even though you and I are not surgeons. So that's, yeah. I mean, have you, you've seen it in residency though, uh, oh, and in your practice, sure. you see it all the time. Yeah, yeah. I've seen, seen, seen lots of them discovered lots of them, whether symptomatic or incidental when we do, you know, abdominal pelvic imaging for, for other reasons. Um, and, and most of the time, the ones that I see are not of significant consequence because they're kind of already uh, the, the ones that are of consequence are basically already filtered out for me in that, you know, if somebody shows up to the ER with a, a strangulated or complicated hernia, they're not calling the internal medicine person, uh, unless there's some other medical complication to, to be addressed. Um, but yeah, this is, this is, uh, something that, like you said, we get asked a lot about. And so I guess we just got to slog through this thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, here we go. So the first thing to discuss is like, what is a hernia? Um, and I think the best definition that, uh, I could both come up with and then find in the literature discusses that when an organ or part of an organ or even tissue abnormally protrudes through the wall of the cavity that it's normally contained in, you know, basically just the protrusion or movement of an organ or part of an organ through a body wall. Uh, so an example of this would be when a loop of your bowel, uh, gets pushed through a weak point in the abdominal wall fascia, uh, that forms a type of inguinal hernia. That's, uh, uh, something we're going to talk about today, but you can get hernias, all over the place. You can get it in the brain. <laughs> you, you can, yeah. You can have a cerebral hernia. <laughs> you could, uh, you can have it in your leg, you know, femoral hernias or, or another type of groin hernia. You can have them around your belly button called an, uh, umbilical hernia. You can have them around your, you know, diaphragm and all sorts. Look, 
every anywhere there's a body cavity, you can herniate something through it. All right. So that's the main thing to kind of take away. It's like when people talk about a hernia, effectively, you're talking about something that's normally contained in a cavity that now it's abnormally protruded through that, uh, that cavity. And there's many different types um, of hernias, not only that are classified by their anatomy, um, but also like how, uh, you know, how they're, they're formed. So, um, they can be congenital. So, uh, hernias that form, um, either, you know, early on in life or maybe even in, in utero, but they can be discovered later on in life, even if you've had them your whole life. Uh, they can also be acquired rather where you just, you don't have them at birth and then they pop up later on. It's very common. And also they can be classified by location based just straight up anatomy. So ventral hernias, for example, occur on the anterior aspect of the body. So, uh, around the, uh, belly button or umbilicus, or as my anatomy professors used to say, the umbilicus, <laughs> like I, I always, I got corrected on that all the time. It just didn't make sense to me to say umbilicus. Right. But, uh, I got scolded at that. And, in, uh, instead of saying duodenum, duodenum. it was, yeah. And I was like, same thing. Like malleolus was malleolus. And I'm like, yeah. you know what guys, I just quit. I'm yeah. not going to do this master's thing. And I, mean, I don't want it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say it. Uh, but yeah, so, so you talk about hernias, uh, again, it's just an abnormal protrusion of an organ or part of an organ through a body wall that normally contained that organ or part of the organ. Um, they classify them by anatomy, uh, by when they form. So congenital or acquired, uh, and there's also further classification about complications. And so you kind of already alluded to this. So uh, complications include uh, incarceration. So effectively a hernia that it protrudes through the body wall that's trapped and you can't push it back in, which is known as being reducible. Um, so if it's reducible, you can push it back in, but if it's non-reducible, uh, it can be uh, incarcerated. Uh, it causes reduced blood flow to the tissue that's like trapped help me, help me, get me out of here. And then if it's trapped for too long or too severely, it's strangulated. And effectively you get ischemia uh, and necrosis from lack of blood flow to that tissue. So that's, that's bad news. That's more of a, that's more of a surgical kind of an emergency situation. And, and just so that people who are listening, you know, those tend to have, you know, more severe and progressive symptoms. So in other words, you know, I, I can envision somebody sitting at home who knows they have a hernia and they can't really tell whether they're able to push it back in or not, but they don't have any other issues. They're not having significant pain, something like that. This is not those situations. Um, it tends to be, you know, a bit more dramatic, more progressively painful. There can be some skin changes. There can be some fevers, some vomiting, like other kinds of associated symptoms, particularly as it progresses to where people get quite sick from this. And that's when it ends up being more of an emergency situation. And these are not super common, you yeah. know, among the general population. Yep. And that's one thing we'll kind of discuss is the management of asymptomatic hernias. So people who have a hernia that's either found incidentally or they, you know, see it, but it's not causing them any symptoms versus a symptomatic hernia. The management for symptomatic hernias for people um, who are appropriate surgical, surgical candidates, meaning that, you know, they're relatively low risk of having a complication you know, either from the anesthesia, from the actual surgical procedure itself or the recovery, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Like, Hey, you, you're symptomatic, got, got to do this. And that becomes even more straightforward. If somebody has got like a strangulated or incarcerated, you know, bowel, <laughs> for example, it's like, all right, you got to go to the OR and fix this. Uh, but if it's asymptomatic, it gets a little bit more complicated. We'll, we'll talk about that a little later. So we've already, we've discussed now what a hernia is, how they're kind of classified. Um, just in, as a general sense, uh, but we're going to focus here on groin hernias. 
Um, those are the most common ones that we get asked about uh, and that um, people are generally concerned about. So we're talking about inguinal hernias. So those are the ones that occur around the inguinal ligament. And then there are also femoral uh, hernias. So those occur below the inguinal ligament. Those are the main ones we're going to discuss and actually spend most of the time talking about inguinal ligament, uh, inguinal hernias. Uh, these are pretty common though. And so it's likely if you're listening to this that you know somebody who's, ha- who's had one or you've had one yourself. So approximately 5 million Americans, the about, you know, five, about 10, 10% of the United States have a groin hernia. There's a, about 700,000 surgical repairs of them per year. Um, it is actually like the third most common reason to see the primary care physician. Uh, so it's not unusual that we get a bunch of questions about them, given how common these actually are. There's some complex anatomy that med students and residents, people get pimped on. It's like, oh, is this a indirect or direct, medial or lateral? You know, like all the, all these sorts of things, which is completely irrelevant for this podcast. You don't need to know that because it doesn't change what you would do about it. If you're looking for like a surgical review of, of uh, you know, all these features for your med school rotation, go somewhere else. this isn't the podcast and i I don't say that flippantly it's just like hey you're gonna want different information um than what we're presenting here this is more of a overview of like what hernias are what are the risks what should we do about them and what people would need to know from like a an exercise standpoint which you can't get anywhere else true because it doesn't exist (laughs) because it does not exist so this is the first time (laughs) first time these two things have been paired together Um, so Take homes here from that little section. Super common. Again, 5 million Americans have this almost a million repairs per year. Uh, Third most common reason to see your doctor. Uh, And the inguinal uh, hernias are are the most common. So from that, we move on to diagnosis. So when you do this, like when you diagnose somebody with a hernia, I assume that because you don't do the, you're not working in a primary care hospital. a clinic anymore. So you're just seeing people in the hospital, you're doing a physical exam and you're like, I assume these people don't know that they have one. And you're just like, Hey, uh, how, how long have you had this bulge? Right. Yeah. Most of the time, if I come across it, it's going to be an incidental finding either incidental when we're examining somebody like in the ER for, for some other presenting complaint, or it's something that, like I said, they may have some abdominal pelvic uh, symptom and they get imaging like a CT scan. And then we look at the CT and it's like, oh, they have a, you know, uh, they have a, an inguinal or a femoral, femoral hernia and the patient never reported any complaints or any, any issues uh, about it in the area. And it usually is of no real consequence at that point. So that's kind of the majority of the ones that I end up seeing, obviously, because I'm not the, the surgeon. They wouldn't, nobody would want me operating on their hernias. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, do you think that you could do a hernia repair? Uh, Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think the most complicated surgery is that you could actually perform? Uh, none. <laughs> I mean, you could do a lot. You could repair a laceration, you know, of some, de- oh, some well, degree. If you, if you consider that a surgery, sure. Well, I mean, you know, technically. <laughs> yeah. I do a few basic invasive bedside procedures, but most of them I don't view as surgical in nature and and incision and drainage. uh, I also barely even, I don't really consider surgical either. So you could place a chest tube. Uh, not anymore. All right. (laughs) I think the most advanced thing I could do is like a lipoma removal provided it's like in an area that's generally clear from. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Skin, I don't want to get into skin things where the risks are, you know, pretty minimal. Sure. Yeah. I feel, I feel relatively okay doing that. 
Uh, okay, so we're, we're talking about diagnosis. As Austin alluded to, most of the time, ones that he sees in his setting are incidental. Um, your primary care doctor, it'd be a similar scenario unless you went to the doctor because you had symptoms, meaning that you had pain, dullness, heaviness in the scrotum or in the groin area if you're a woman that you've had for some time. And that was the reason why you went there. If you just went to the doctor for your physical or just, you know, as my dad says, and I, as I shake my head, is I, I got to get my, my labs done. Like yeah. <laughs> for, for, for what? <laughs> anyway, that's a, we have a screening podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that would be the way uh, they would also be incidentally found um, just on a, a physical exam. We don't screen for these because in general, they're, m- most of them either are symptomatic or will become symptomatic. Me- meaning that you don't have to just, you know, screen every individual for a hernia because you're going to miss it and something bad is going to happen. Um, or that you could reliably identify very small hernias um, prior to them either causing symptoms or, or being noticeable by the individual themselves. So we don't screen for these things, which is, you know, important to, to note. You don't go to the doctor, hey, can you check me for hernias? It's like, well, do you think you have one? You know? Yeah. If yeah. you're, wor- if you're worried, I'm, most doctors would be happy to look, you know, sure. and, 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 and check it out. But if you're not symptomatic and you haven't noticed, uh, you know, the most common sort of findings like a bulge, uh, comp- usually company with heaviness, pain, et cetera, in the groin, uh, region, or particularly if you have a bulge that's reducible, meaning you can push it back in. Nobody's just looking at these just to make sure, you know, right. or at least, yep. at least they shouldn't. So then the question is like, when should you go to see the doctor? Uh, you know, like I said, two third, most of these are symptomatic. About two thirds of them are symptomatic, meaning pain or discomfort in the groin. It's usually this vague sort of dull pain or heaviness. Um, if it's severe pain, that should kind of raise the suspicion of either a more severe process, like it's strangulated or incarcerated, or other diagnoses like testicular torsion, for example, when the spermatic cord, you know, twists over on itself, or epididymitis, which is an inflammation of the epididymis. Other sort of things that are, you know, not hernias, but require medical attention. If you're asymptomatic, if you're asymptomatic, then, and you have a bulge still, which is again, it's about a third, um, they have a bulge, but they're asymptomatic, uh, that it, and you can push it back in, meaning it's reducible. It should probably also be evaluated because you have to weigh the risks and benefits of getting it repaired now before it's symptomatic versus, uh, you know, watchful waiting, which we'll discuss Mm -hmm. in the future. Um, how many that you have found, were you like, did you write an actual consult to, for surgery while they're inpatient? None. Oh, really? Yeah. Pretty much never. It's, it's pretty much never a big, a big issue for, you know, when somebody that I'm admitting for a medical reason, it's not like during the course of their hospitalization, they develop a new incarcerated or strangulated hernia. So yeah, I'm pretty much never doing that. If, um, it, whereas if they present with that as a primary issue, then the surgeons will see him right off the bat and I'll probably either never see him or I'll get consulted for some other medicine. For like high blood pressure or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. We laugh, be, you know, not Pre-op, because high blood whatever. pressure is funny, but just the ways the hospital works sometimes yes, yes. or laugh, uh, make, you, <laughs> make you laugh. And if you don't laugh, then maybe you, you cry. <laughs> so, um, so as far as how these are diagnosed, like I said, it's physical exam which actually is surprisingly sensitive and, and relatively specific. So it's got a 75% sensitivity, meaning it picks up, uh, you know, these things relatively well. 
And if you do have a positive finding, it kind of means that that's what you got. Um, how this is done, the patient standing and either actively coughing or performing a Valsalva maneuver, you should see a bulge uh, above or below the inguinal ligament. If it's above, you usually call that, it's probably an inguinal hernia. If it's below, typically ephemeral uh, uh, hernia, but not always. But that's just you know kind of rule of thumb here. Uh, usually then palpate, meaning just handle or uh, feel with the hands, uh, any masses that are, are bulges, um, wherever they may be. There's also some folks that will actually need imaging. So ultrasound or CT, uh, or other imaging to confirm the location. So that's why another reason why Austin sometimes see these, sees these incidentally people who don't even know that they have hernias. Um, we'll get a CT for another reason or other image and would say, oh, look at that thing. That's, that's a hernia there. Um, there's actually some evidence showing that individuals who carry more adipose tissue, uh, it's hard to harder to detect um, hernias just based on physical exam. And so sometimes the additional imaging, uh, you know, is more useful for that. However, the guidelines say from the Choosing Wisely campaign, which basically eliminates low benefit, um, low yield uh, medical practices says to don't, they don't recommend people get additional imaging for the hernias. So you can look that up on the choosing wisely website. If you are a physician or a physician in training. So that way you have some ammo. If somebody says, Hey, we should get imaging on this person with the hernia. As far as the actual meat and potatoes of this podcast really has to go, really has to deal with like causes or things that, that increase the risk of developing a hernia because I think, and Austin, you can weigh in on this. You asked a hundred doctors, hundred primary care docs, what causes a hernia? What put, what increases the risk of a hernia? What sort of answers do you think you'd get? I think probably most would recognize that carrying excess body fat or obesity is uh, is a, a part of it, but they'd probably default to just in general anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure and include lifting in that category. I think that would be the. Uh, the hot take, like if, if, you know, somebody who actually thought about, thought about it and then reduced it down to some, you know, mechanical cause and then be like, yep. Anything that cre increases intra abdominal pressure, which so straining while defecating a cough, for example, yeah. chronic cough, for example, lifting heavy weights, uh, and then obesity and, uh, you know, they, they'd be wrong on all accounts. So there's that. Basically, when you try to logic your way through this, logic only works if your premises are correct. If your premises are incorrect, then how you're going to you know, work your way through this issue uh, leads you to false conclusions. So the things with the highest level of evidence that we have right now for, think the, for uh, characteristics that increase the risk of uh, hernias, inguinal hernias uh, in particular, one, first degree relatives. Like for, if you had a first degree relative diagnosed with a, a inguinal hernia that elevates the inguinal hernia incidence, especially in females. So, uh, in a study of over 27,000 men, for example, uh, ages 20 to 22, 20% of the subjects who had a, uh, inguinal hernia had a first degree relative with an inguinal hernia. Um, and another 20% had an affected second degree relative. So there's some inheritance here, familial predisposition, if you will. Um, other things with high level of, in, uh, of evidence, gender, inguinal hernia is more common in men. It's also 20 times more likely to require a, a surgical repair. Uh, it might be due to this wider inguinal canal uh, than women. 
basically because the some complex stuff that goes on with like testicular descent and you know other anatomical embryological things occurring all, that you know while the male fetus is developing so gender has has some influence on risk age again we kind of already discussed this so there's a bimodal or two peaked kind of dis, uh, uh, incidents here uh, so the first peak is about five years old these are primary you know con, you know mostly congenital um, hernias and then the second peaks at 70 to 80 um, so age age obviously is a, is a risk factor here I, I, I view that like a light bulb really so you plug in a light bulb right and you flick it you put the you flip the switch and it can immediately go out right so that's just like the five-year-old getting the hernia <laughs> or it can last for a long time and go out later and that's like the 70 to 80 year old getting the <laughs> getting the hernia but it usually it doesn't usually you know sometime in the middle it's rare for it to kind of fail like that so uh we don't know why uh this happens more in older folks there's some thought to like age-related changes in connective tissue but it's really unclear um, other things with high levels of evidence uh if you've got a collagen or so, uh, met, uh, metabolism issue like a connective tissue disorder you mean something like that yeah yeah okay. so both so some people just have this like rare gene variant where they have diminished type uh diminished amounts of type 1 collagen and more type 3 collagen and then there's also like connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos for example all those things yeah can contribute if you have a history of prostatectomy so your prostate has been either partially or fully removed uh especially if it was open and radical not radical like surfboard but just just the type of procedure uh or descriptor of the procedure that can increase the risk and uh, my favorite part about this after digging into the literature has to do with uh, excess adipose tissue. So when, we first, when I first kind of quizzed you here, you said, yeah, that most physicians would recognize the connection between, you know, excess adiposity and risk of hernia. Yep. But excess adiposity, carrying more body fat, appears to be protective. So for ex the hazard ratio, for example, for overweight individuals, those are individuals, individuals in the overweight category, so that's, those are individuals uh, with BMIs between 25 and 29.9. The hazard ratio is 0.79, meaning that there's some protective effect there. And for individuals in the obese category, so those are uh, folks with BMIs uh, greater than 30, the hazard ratio is 0.51. So it appears like this protective effect of, greater, of carrying uh, greater amounts of body fat uh, is due to potentially the uh, stronger or thicker abdominal wall musculature, um, which is a consequence of carrying more adipose tissue potentially, uh, which could be a, a stronger barrier against herniation. Uh, there's also, uh, the slight risk that there's, it could be harder to detect hernias in this population. Um, that being said, this has been shown, you know, over and over and over again, which I find fascinating. Well, it sounds like you just need to gain some weight. <laughs> gain some muscular body weight <laughs> or not, apparently. <laughs> But it's just one of those things, right? So again, if you asked just again, a hundred physicians, I, I would, yeah, I would hundred percent agree with you that, oh, you know, probably 90% of them, at least if they, if they thought about it would say obesity, because that seems to be a risk for everything. Right. And then intra increased intra-abdominal pressure. Um, uh, that doesn't, we don't have that particularly not with high levels of evidence, uh, things with lower level of evidence. Uh, <clears throat> so we talked about the rare connective tissue disorders, um, there appears to be some like racial inequality here with respect to uh, hernia generation. 
Um, so inguinal hernias, for example, are, are way less common in black adults than they are in white uh, 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 populations. Um, tobacco use actually appears to be protective in a way. It's inversely correlated with inguinal hernia incidence. So heavy smokers have a 26% lower risk of groin hernia <clears throat> on a study out of Sweden on 7,500 men. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, it, probably if you ask these physicians, they'd say obesity, smoking, and increased intra-abdominal pressure. And it's like, no, no, and no. Because <laughs> I definitely, I think that uh, the the obesity thing. Looking through it, I have seen more consistent evidence on that. Uh, the smoking thing, I suspect that there's probably some conflicting data on that. Yeah, so I agree that the uh, tobacco use thing is probably less well established than the uh, excess adiposity thing. But it's still just interesting because if you asked physicians, yeah, to be the first three things they rattle off, they'd say obesity, smoking, and you know lifting heavy stuff if they reduce the intra-abdominal pressure thing down yeah. to, uh, to lifting. And it's like, no, no, and maybe no. So <laughs> let's <laughs> a little more nuanced. So let's talk about lifting because, you know, it's barbell medicine. We're not just you know, providing medical information with no context here. Let's talk about lifting in particular. Um, so the, the first concept I want to introduce is actually very similar to a lot of our pain, uh, our material on pain. If so, if you get a hernia, why are you getting the hernia or put to use the, the, the pain metaphor, if you have pain, like, why are you getting pain? It's not usually due to a single event. Like, Oh, you did this one thing. That's this one weird trick to get a hernia or to develop pain. It's, you know, more complex than that. Um, there's actually some, uh, pretty good evidence here. Uh, as far as like, when people develop hernias, like what are, you know, what are they doing and can they reliably correlate that with a single event and do these events have anything in common? Uh, the title of the paper, which is great is it is highly unlikely that the development of an abdominal wall hernia can be attributable to a single strenuous event. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So <laughs> it's like, like, it's like the authors know, like nobody's going to read this. Yeah, it's like, that's it. That's the paper. <laughs> that's the paper. Yeah. But it's just like saying, you know, Oh, I have back pain. It's like, Oh, it probably wasn't just from that deadlift attempt. For example, you know, it's unlikely that a single event causes, um, you know, pain in, in most instances. And, and, and same thing with the, with the hernias here, uh, further on, particularly to that intra abdominal pressure, uh, discussion that Austin alluded to earlier. There's this really cool study they did uh, in this, I believe, it was out of Copenhagen, uh, so over in Denmark. So they took 18,000 men. Uh, they wanted to evaluate the hypothesis that ex the exposure response or dose response relationship. Uh, uh, they wanted to evaluate whether that existed between hours, the hours per day spent walking or standing, um, and also the total load lifted per day. Uh, and they only measured the amount of load lifted per day, if it was over 20 kilos, they wanted to evaluate the relationship between the volume of that and hernias. So there was no significant difference in inguinal hernia cases between those who lifted the most weight per day and those who didn't lift at all. Uh, in fact, the only significant relationship they found was the amount of standing that each group did per day. The group that spent greater than six hours per day standing or walking at work had a 45% higher risk of undergoing a hernia repair uh, uh, compared to those who stood less than four hours per day. Hmm. And, uh, I, I, again, I think if you were to ask physicians, 
if they thought that standing or walking increased the risk of developing an inguinal hernia, I think most are going to say no. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It, it was really cool in the study. They calculated a, uh, uh, a load, uh, like some, some metric of, of kind of cumulative loading exposure, um, per unit time. Yeah. What's the, the smoking one? It's uh, a pack year history. Yeah. Yeah. So in this, it was, it was like a load year history. It's like, yeah. I wonder. And so then I started wondering like, what would, what is my load? History? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> like patient presents with abdominal pain, million load history, <laughs> yeah, million load year history. Yeah. Million kilos. Um, yeah. So it's just interesting. And I'll put these links to the papers in the in the description below. So if you want to kind of pull them, I think all of them are open source. So you could read the whole thing. It's just interesting. They, again, they found no relationship between the amount of load that people lifted per day and all of those would, you know, they're 20 kilos. So 44 pounds. And, you know, doctors would say, Oh, if, you know, don't lift heavy. And I think most doctors would say that 20 kilos is heavy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's just a barbell, bro. Um, so yeah, I, we don't really find any good evidence that, uh, lifting weights or a single strenuous event like a one RM or heavy, heavy effort is associated with the development of hernias, which makes sense given the risk factors we just discussed above. So the inheritance, gender, age, uh, you know, collagen, uh, disorders, um, and, a, you know, prostate surgery history. None of those things are modifiable via exercise. So why do we think that exercise really, particularly resistance training has a correlation here? Um, and I certainly, anyway. and I certainly wouldn't want to, in, in light of that, use, um, use hernias as a reason to discourage people from resistance training, given the, not only the, the lack of consistent evidence we have on the hernia front, but also the overwhelming evidence we have on the benefit side. Yeah. Yeah. There are un, there's an unknown risk of hernia really due to resistance training. We don't know. It doesn't appear to be robust or yeah. If it were if it were large and consistent, then we would have probably found it by now. So yeah. if it exists, it's probably small and or inconsistent slash like modified or 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 kind of confounded by other exposures or something like that. Um, right. And where, whereas yeah. the benefits of resistance training are well established, large, so. consistent, and uh, yeah, <laughs> overwhelming. So <laughs> so yeah, on balance, uh, you know, you, you should train. You should train. Yep. All right. We talked about diagnosis. We talked about what it, what they are. Some demographic stuff. As far as treatment, you, you know what I do with my hernia because I, I have I have an umbilical hernia just right north of my, my belly button. You know what I do with it? You push it back in. I just push it back in. <laughs> uh, so I actually have seen a surgeon about it, and it's just too small um, for them to want to do anything about. And since and basically since I've had it since birth. Um, and it hasn't gotten larger over time, which is not the usual history here. Usually the general history of hernia is that they get bigger over time. Um, nobody wants to do anything about it and I'm fine with it. If it was bigger, um, or more, uh, or bothered me at all, I would get, you know, I would probably push harder for a repair, but since it's the same size, it doesn't bother me. I don't do anything about it. Um, yeah. Do you actually, do you have a hernia Austin? Have you ever had I, Not that I know of. <laughs> you, do you want me to check you the next time? <laughs> no, no, right, I'm, no good. Well, I'm, I'm good. I'm yeah. good. <laughs> you get on that. Um, so in general, when you look at the current guidelines for management of hernias, uh, symptomatic groin hernias should, you know, need to be treated surgically. And again, this assumes, um, that 
the risk benefits are in favor of surgery, which for the most part they are, unless somebody was like a really terrible surgical candidate, in which case some other options probably be presented to them. Um, the bigger question here is what to do with asymptomatic individuals with a hernia. So again, only one third of folks with a hernia approximately are asymptomatic, um, but 70% of them will become symptomatic uh, sufficiently so to require surgery within the next five years. So that's like the natural history of these things are that they, natural course of these things are that they get bigger, become symptomatic, and then you require surgery. So, you know, there's this sort of balance here. It's like, well, is it appropriate to just watch and wait, you know, or uh, is it appropriate to still operate on these things um, right when you get to, you know, find them? Um, It used to be that if you found them, you know, there was no question. You just, yeah, you make your appointment with the surgeon and now there's, they're taking a more nuanced approach, just kind of weighing out the risks and benefits. Um, other risks, uh, you know, other risks include like complications of the hernia, worsening of symptoms. You know, if you get something that's incarcerated or strangulated, you need emergent surgery, uh, meaning that you don't get to like, you know, discuss this with your surgeon before, uh, they might have to do it not as not a scheduled surgery. Usually there's a little more complications with those repairs as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of this, uh, a, a controversial topic right now in the, uh, in the literature, even in the current guidelines, as far as what you should do, um, with this watchful waiting approach. It, and in general, I think this comes down to patient preferences. Um, anything else you want to add on that, Austin? Yeah, there, are, I mean, th- this is not a super unique situation in medicine insofar as the, the decision-making is maybe not super clear upfront or, or the absolute indications, uh, you know, to, to do something in an asymptomatic person is not super clear up front. And, and we go through this kind of discussion process and, and attempt what's called a shared decision making to the extent that, you know, you can adequately inform and educate the patient on, on the nature of this condition and, and uh, the likely course, natural history, things like that, and, and kind of come to a, a shared plan, whether the patient's preference is to watch and wait, whether they would say, no, I would never want surgery under any circumstance, unless it was one of these emergencies that was about to kill me, or no, let's just do it now and get it out of the way and kind of the, the pros and cons to each approach. So we do yep. this all the time in a variety Literally of contexts. Yeah. <laughs> Literally nonstop all the time. Which is good <laughs> because it's not just the doctor making a unilateral decision Then shared decision-making yeah. helps the patient feel like they have more control over their, uh, over their health and that they play a larger role in their healthcare. All these things that empower the patient, improve self-efficacy. We're here for it. Um, interestingly, as, as part of like what the treatment is for symptomatic hernia, as we talk about surgery being the definitive treatment here, uh, a lot of further questions we get, which again, I don't know why we get these questions. Well, what kind of surgery should I have? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, what kind of mesh should be used or what kind of repair procedure? It's like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, doing my due diligence here, you know, reading the guidelines and kind of taking a deeper dive into the literature, there are many different procedures and <clears throat> surgical styles and repair material that can yield good outcomes. So there's not just, there's no one definitive procedure that's like, yep, this is the one. It's got clear uh, superiority to other procedures, other techniques. It's, you know, there there are different styles, different uh, approaches that all seem to work reasonably well, provided that the surgeon has good, you know, experience with them and, you know. Does enough of them regularly. Correct. Yes, exactly. You know, patient volume, stuff like that, that they see. Yep, exactly. So, um, 
basically the surgical treatment should be tailored to the surgeon's expertise uh, in, ad- in addition to the patient and the their hernia uh, characteristics uh, and the resources available to them. Um, and it's, yeah, so just to emphasize, there's not just a, a single like procedure that has clear superiority. Um, so I wouldn't ask the surgeon like, you can obviously would discuss like what the procedure is going to be like and how they're going to do it, but not necessarily like demand one particular procedure or repair material because you'd want something that they're more familiar with um, and that is actually appropriate for your particular hernia. Uh, fortunately, fortunately, despite one standard repair technique for all hernias not necessarily existing, the surgical treatment is pretty successful. Recurrences occur, and by recurrences we mean like the, that they necessitate a reoperation uh, occurs about ten to fifteen percent of the time, um, and there's some risk of uh, chronic pain. Uh, which is defined as pain lasting longer than three months that occurs in about, again, 10% of patients. The ways that you can reduce like the need of a reoperation um, is effectively by getting a surgeon who does a lot of these things, is very familiar with the procedure, um, and who uses good surgical technique. That's that's really what we this is kind of repeated over and over again in the, in the literature. It's not, again, it's not just like use this type of mesh or this kind of you know closure or this particular approach. It's uh, effectively... Uh, surgeons who have a lot of patient volume, so they see they do this a lot, uh, and that they have uh, a lot of experience with the actual procedure that they're they're doing. That's that's the 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 word on treatment. Okay, final part of this before we get to the lightning round, which is Austin's favorite part of any podcast. <laughs> um, and the final uh, part of this and, and the question we get quite quite often is, all right, I had a hernia repair, I had hernia surgery, like when can I get back to lifting? Like, so first off, just, you need, you should talk to your surgeon. Like that should be the first question that you ask to them and the, and not just like ask them and then that's the end of it. But if they give you uh, a sort of re- a reply that doesn't necessarily make sense to you entirely or that you don't like, you should, you know, ask for clarification. I mean, you did just let them cut into you. Right. So it's the least they can do really. Um, that being said, would you actually look at the current guidelines, uh, the international hernia, was it the international hernia recommendations or international hernia standard guidelines uh, that were just like recently published? Um, they state that a period of rest or a lifting restriction is not necessary after an inguinal hernia operation. Patients can do what they, are, what they feel capable of doing, hmm. which it's from 2018. I'm 100% on board with this. But the, cool, the coolest part about this paper is actually go through and like you know, what do doctors usually recommend? And they found that surgeons' recommendations for physical activity varied wildly, were rarely evidence-based, and have the potential to greatly affect physical activity participation in the patients. And we're like, yes, yes, exactly. This is what we've been <laughs> saying the whole time. And in fact, when I tried to do that podcast earlier with the, the surgical attending, um, and I asked you know him what the what his advice generally was post-operatively, he said, ah, I don't lift anything greater than uh, uh, 20 pounds for the next, you know, four to six weeks. And I was like, what? It's just made up. It, it, yeah, exactly. And so I understand that you have to say something, right? So like, I'm empathetic that like, you have to give some advice and you feel like the more specific advice is more actionable. I get that hundred percent, but, but I think the risks, you know, that you have there is that, is that you can reduce patients' physical activity. And that's a huge problem because people are relatively sedentary already anyway. So yeah, 
no real reason to for rest or lifting restriction post-op, but you should ask your doctor about that. Yeah, of course. We're not telling you to do anything. We're just a couple of guys on the internet. <laughs> we're just two dudes on the internet, you know, who, have, who happen to be you know medically trained, but we're not your doctor, unless we are your doctor, in which case, you know, we should have a private conversation about this. Okay. Austin's favorite part of any podcast is a lightning round. So how we'll do this is I'll ask you the question first and then, you know, see what you say. And then if there's anything to add, I'll jump in. Okay. Austin, do lifting belts protect against hernias? Uh, I don't see a clear mechanism for how that could happen. Uh, you will probably hear conversely some people, you know, uh, thinking through the abdominal pressure uh, mechanism we talked about earlier, where they might suggest that it increases the risk. Uh, but of course, we don't really have good evidence on that based on all the other factors that have been looked at, kind of trying to correlate increases in intra-abdominal pressure with it. So I'm skeptical that it would either increase or decrease the risk of hernias. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think it does anything. I mean, with respect to hernias, uh, now, it's of not course, just like a placebo when you lift. Yeah. Now but, what I, what I would say is that, uh, individuals who use them to the extent that their hernias are symptomatic, you know, they may observe that their symptoms, maybe they, maybe they notice a little bit more discomfort or a little bit more bulging or something like that. If they already have one, when, when using something like that, um, as you mentioned, you know, Valsalva is used as part in part of the diagnostic kind of approach and, and the exam for this thing. But as far as like causing a new hernia is, is kind of what I'm talking about here. I don't really think that that's going to be, uh, uh, the case. Yep. And then the other last part of this would be, I don't think that it actually prevents the sort of incarceration or strangulation by like patching the hole, meaning that you like wear the belt over oh, where yeah. the hernia is. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Not, not going to work there. Yeah. Not going to work there. Uh, the, we already talked about the risk of recurrence after repair. Um, uh, so we don't need to do that. The lightning round was short this time, Austin. I, I spared you. I spared you. I like it. Yeah. So the take home here, inguinal hernia is relatively common, uh, particularly if there's a defect in the fascia and the abdomen, uh, in, the, in the fascia of the abdomen. Um, usually bowel or fat protrudes through this uh, defect and can cause pain. Risk factors are unrelated uh, to um, lifting, uh, but do include things like family, uh, family history, age, sex, surgical history, and soft tissue abnormalities, but yeah, probably not resistance training. Um, and then if you're symptomatic or if you notice it, it should probably be evaluated, evaluated by a physician, uh, to get a clear diagnosis and discuss management strategies. Sounds good. What do you, what do you think, man? Yeah. I don't really have anything else to say on this. <laughs> right. This is your, was this your favorite podcast that we've ever done? Oh yeah. Yeah. General surgery is like really my, my top notch favorite specialty. <laughs> Didn't that, you said that it made you want to quit medical school. If yeah. I recall. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was uh, close to wanting to bail on everything. <laughs> not, my, like, not my nah. jam. Not my jam. Nah. Yeah. I did enjoy my surgical residency. My least favorite was pediatrics. Uh, because I think the, like the service that I was on was like very strong not strange kids. That's not what I'm saying, but like the cases were strange. It was like neurosurge, uh, room endo. Oh, sure. Yeah. And like, yeah. And I'm like, what are all of these zebras doing in my hospital? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So yeah, that I was like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this, yeah. but, uh, here we are. <laughs> so 
Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always, Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode 102. Hey, if you're listening to this on your smartphone, you know, don't just swipe out of this thing. Go click like, give us five stars, leave us a rating and review. That really helps us out, drives traffic to our podcast, share it with a friend, all that sort of fun stuff. And you can catch us here, wherever you get your podcast from, every Monday, dropping a new podcast episode with all the latest nuance in health and fitness. So thanks again for tuning in. See you guys next time.